The business of culture, the culture of business, markets, the economy, media and technology, politics and policy, startups. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I don't think anybody that was around in 2008 or 9 thinks that if we do go into recession, it will look anything like the last one. On the other hand, I think folks are recognizing that things are very different right now. The Federal Reserve is raising interest rates. We had interest rates near zero for so many years, Robin, uh, that it was easy to throw a dartboard at the stock market and make anything work. But now, with interest rates going up, you have to be more selective. Stocks rally on weaker-than-expected economic numbers. They tank on a great jobs report. What gives? Thanks to inflation and the Federal Reserve's tightening campaign, 2022 underscored how markets and the economy don't necessarily have to act in tandem. How long will this disconnect last, and what might we expect in the new year? Stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. A shout out to our listeners on WVTF, Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can message me to carry full disclosure on your air. Joining me yet again now, a a veritable friend of the show is Caleb Silver. He is the editor-in-chief of Investopedia, former president of the Board of Governors of the Society of Advancing Business Editing and Writing in a past life. Between 2011 and 2014, he was the director of U.S. Business News at CNN, which we will talk about. How are you, Caleb? I am good and so proud to be called a friend of the show. This is a big deal for me. Thanks for having me. I think by the third time you come on, that's like friend of the show status or maybe hat trick status. I have to come up with something or maybe send you a gift card to Applebee's or something. I haven't come up with a shtick yet. Yeah, you know what I want. I want that Continental Reuben. I yes. want the, the Salmon Reuben at the Continental in Caleb Richmond, Caleb Silver did grace us with his presence in Richmond in the, in the throes of the pandemic, and I took him to Continental West Hampton where he tried the Salmon Reuben. It's my favorite sandwich here. But that's neither here nor there. I got to ask you. I saw this headline in the Wall Street Journal the other day. I guess I had to call it out. The Dow fell 500 points effectively on good news. Are we at that point kind of in late stage capitalism where investors are rooting for kind of sluggish news that might have the Federal Reserve stay on the sidelines versus good news that Main Street and the White House would be proud of? Yeah, we're in that weird, weird dynamic, Robin, where good news in the economy or relatively good news in the economy has not been great news for investors. Why? Because if the economy is healing, it's not. if it's not going into a recession, if we continue to add jobs month after month, the Federal Reserve, our central bank, is going to stay aggressive, keep raising interest rates. That puts pressure on risky assets like stocks. That's been the dynamic all year long. And folks were hoping for a little reprieve. I don't know if we're going to get it because inflation's sticky high and the job market and other parts of the economy are still relatively strong. What do you suspect, talking to all the sources and all the TV hits that you do and the green rooms that you're in, what is that other? What are these other reservoirs of savings that consumers are tapping when we saw 263,000 jobs created in spite of the Fed hiking, I think, by four points within a year? It's kind of an annoyingly resilient economy if you're Jerome Powell of the Federal Reserve. Where is that money coming from? Well, we did hand out a lot of money over the last few years, about $7 trillion in disbursements or government aid in some form or another. And in 2020 and 2021, the personal savings rate topped 20%. That's huge. That said, we're back at 3% right now in terms of the personal savings rate and credit card balances are rising. So we're starting as consumers to spend more on our credit cards, drive up debt. The average debt per credit card holder is about $9,000, Robin. So we're back in that kind of scary territory where we're spending more than we're bringing in because we can't keep up with inflation. And then the job market's totally imbalanced because we're still hiring in sectors that need workers. Trucking, uh, we still need teachers, we still need healthcare workers, we still need leisure and hospitality workers. So it's been very, very difficult uh, you know, to get a balance in the labor market because you're seeing layoffs on the tech side. These companies that were overbloated, borrowed too much money, money's gotten a lot more expensive to borrow. So they're laying off workers as growth slows. It's a weird push-pull going on right now. The Federal Reserve has this dual mandate, needs full employment and stable prices. Right now, you don't have stable prices. You have inflation approaching, what, 7 or 8%, unemployment at 3.7%. 
To what extent do you think they would trade higher unemployment for lower inflation? They have this target of 2% inflation, which seems really far away from 7 or 8%. But I think the trade-off is you have to get higher unemployment and people willing to take jobs for lower salaries nominally to get that inflation rate down. Is there a not-too-hot, not-too-cold threshold that you understand the Fed might be targeting? Yeah, that's that soft landing everybody's hoping for, the threading of the needle that everyone's hoping the Federal Reserve is going to be able to do. But I think the Fed would make that trade today, drive up unemployment, slow down wage growth in order to bring down overall inflation, because wage inflation has been a big part of overall inflation. Yeah, gas prices were high, food prices are high, rent's high. But the big deal is that we're also seeing wage inflation, which puts pressure on companies. They have to pass those extra costs on to consumers. Eventually, consumers might get tapped out. That's the very tricky part of the soft landing. I don't know if they're going to Mary Lou Retton this one or not, but everyone's betting that, or hoping, I think everyone, not everyone, but everyone's hoping that they do have a softer landing than, than could happen here and send us into a deep recession. So what, uh, it seems like what investors are romancing is like the idea of a, of a soft landing, or maybe the Fed could stop at 4.5% or something and just let the medicine sink in. Uh, in the meantime, markets have really sold off for much of this year. You had more than a correction. You had a bear market. More recently, we we kind of touched new bull market territory. But something I think you get asked about a lot, especially if you're going to Christmas and Hanukkah parties, people are going to buttonhole the editor of Investopedia. Is, is diversification dead? Because you had one of these rare aberration years that bonds and stocks tanked at the same time. That's not supposed to happen. Bonds, especially treasuries, are supposed to be ballast in a portfolio that would move inverse to stocks. Yeah, to your point, I'm not allowed to eat arugula before I answer some of those questions from my relatives <laughs> because they think I'm in the know. But it didn't work this year. This is one of those weird years with a 60-40 portfolio that you and I grew up with as sort of one of the foundations for diversified So 60% investment. stocks, 40% bonds. Correct. That's usually been the ballast. Uh, not the absolute rule, but one you want to kind of look at when you start to formulate your portfolio. That didn't work at all. It was the worst year in history for that because it's very unusual for both the stock market and the bond market to have a bad year in the same year. So weird year for it, but that's already kind of worked itself out. And if you're a bond investor, a fixed income investor, or if you have fixed income or CDs or money market funds, you're starting to make some money on yields. You're starting to make some money in the bank. So that already sort of worked itself out. It was that way for about six months. Now we're having a little bit of recovery in stocks. The Dow up 20% off its bear market lows. The S&P 500 about 8% up from its lows. But the bond market has recovered a lot, especially on the yield front. So you're finally getting some money for the money you have in the bank or in fixed income. Mm. Now, what about international? Uh, the United States clearly has been the epicenter of concern with the Federal Reserve. The most monitored metric in the world is the Fed funds rate. It's hardwired to everything. But in past cycles like this, especially when you saw commodity prices go up and oil prices go up and grain prices and copper and everything, emerging markets would benefit. And I look at the chart on emerging markets. They have had a dead 15 years. It's been a dead decade and a half. They peaked in October of 2007 at the incipient level of the, the great financial crisis back then, and no one has really touched them sustainably since. Yeah, it's been very tough for emerging markets, but I was looking at the best performing stock markets this year, and I may have had Brazil at the top of my World Cup bracket, but I did not have Brazil as the top of the best performing country index so far this year. It's up about 1%. Why? Heavy in the mining and minerals, but inflation in Brazil is somewhere north of 70%. So how could that be the case? Well, it's a heavy industrial mining and minerals export company, and we had a bull market in that in the last year. But the other emerging markets have had a very rough time. And a big, big reason for that, Robin, is the dollar. As the dollar strengthens, emerging markets suffer a lot because their exports are priced in dollars. They also have a lot of debt that is priced in dollars. So the dollar has been super strong this year. You've probably seen the cover of the magazines with you know uh, George Washington flexing his muscles and the muscle tee. Well, the dollar, when the dollar's strong, risky assets and emerging markets don't do well at all. And that has been the theme. Do you believe the knock that emerging markets, developing economies, whether you're talking about Brazil, the Philippines, I mean, South Korea is even still classified as an emerging market. I don't know how, but other economies in Latin America are frontier markets in sub-Saharan Africa. They're only as good as China's demand. And right now, China is a sick player because of the COVID lockdowns, and it's had a difficult year. Yeah, it's had a very difficult year, and it's going to get even more difficult. The COVID lockdowns are a big part of that. But also, got Chinese New Year coming up in January. There's two weeks off before that, and I think one week after that. 
Plus, you know, China is a huge exporter to many countries, but it's the biggest exporter to the United States. We're importing mm -hmm. some $430 billion worth of goods from there. We still have 20% tariffs on a lot of those goods. So it's very complicated with China, but it's also a supplier and a buyer from the rest of the world. So as China goes, so go a lot of emerging markets, especially in the Asia Pacific region and in South America, where China is their main trading partner. You know, I don't know how anecdotal, apocryphal this is, but uh, I ordered a new iMac. Uh, it's manufactured in China in the throes of these protests, these record protests that you have not seen since the Tiananmen crackdown in 1989. And I got it on Amazon, and Amazon was kind of flaky about describing why the order died. It was kind of sucked into some abyss. And I finally got this meek apology, like, sorry, we won't be able to fulfill this order. And certainly you guys have covered it in the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg's and others have covered it. It really puts the iPhone pipeline at risk. I mean, maybe that's the most significant export that China has in terms of value added and the price total of the export and how important it is to the developing markets is this, this gadget that everybody covets that suddenly you can't get as easily. Yeah, isn't it weird that that has become probably the most important product in the world or one of the most important <laughs> products in the world, most important products in the world and a huge economic indicator when Apple sneezes because it can't get enough supply or it doesn't have enough phones or there's not enough demand, the entire stock market gets a cold, especially because Apple is one of the most widely held stocks out there. It's Warren Buffett's favorite stock, but it's also the most Ooh. widely held stock along with Microsoft in mutual funds, ETFs, hedge funds, pension funds. Everyone owns it. Uh, has China, I mean, we. I recently did an interview on this. Has China in the modern era ever had a hard landing? Have we ever felt from the United States perspective what it would be like if China truly had something like a Great Recession? We know they spent their way out of 2009 and 2010 in record terms. We know that they largely survived the emerging market contagion of the late 1990s. I don't believe that in the 20 years or so since China was added to the World Trade Organization in this time of epic growth and a, a record number of people taken out of poverty, that it has ever visited a, a, an economic crash. Well, you said it. Economic engineering uh, is a, something they're very good at in China. Why? Because they own the People's Bank of China. The government controls that. It can print as much money as it wants. Now, we have our system here in the United States, but the Federal Reserve is supposed to be independent. Uh, you're supposed to you know, get votes on whether or not you're going to disperse government money. A little bit different in China, but also China has been hell-bent on growth. This China 2025 plan to make China and the Chinese economy independent from a technology perspective from every other country, that is very real in China. That's something that the chairman uh, and the president of China has been pushing very hard. This whole battle over semiconductors right now and the building of a new Taiwan semiconductor plant in Arizona and all that, that is very much centered on China's uh, desire to be technology independent in the next few years. And what would happen if China crashed? This is what I was, we, I think Grant's interest rate observer tried to game it out a decade ago. They said it wouldn't be all bad because you'd see commodity prices tumble. Oil, coal, certainly you felt that foot taken off the gas this year and a relief in uh, energy prices, a relief in grain prices. Uh, there's not so much, I mean, nominally that you would think that they overwhelmingly import from the United States outside of agricultural goods, unless I'm incorrect. Yeah, well, China does own about a trillion dollars of U.S. debt. We have about $28 trillion outstanding. So that's a big deal. If China crashes and can't service its U.S. debt payments, that's a very big deal. But also, you know, a pretty big, they're our, our biggest customer as well. So we do a lot of export to China. A lot of other countries do. So a China crash would be felt very heavily around the world, probably here in the U.S. But you're right, there would be a drop off in commodity prices and in demand and maybe an easing of some national security concerns. But I don't think as uh, U.S. investors or even consumers, we want to wish for that because the unknowns uh, behind the Chinese economy could be very dangerous indeed. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Caleb Silver. He is the editor-in-chief of Investopedia. He was previously the director of business news at CNN between 2011 and 2014. And in a past past life, he was senior producer of The Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer and the executive producer of CNN Money. I believe you and I nearly crossed paths at Bloomberg. We, we didn't, but I met you when you were at CNN. Talking about the Fed again, which every all eyes are on the Federal Reserve, do they still have full credibility to the extent that they missed? You know, at this time last year, they were talking about inflation being transitory. Clearly, it's not. It's a pernicious problem. It is stuck around despite all these rate hikes in chunky increments, mind you. In my day, we didn't hike rates by three quarters of a point successively so many times. Where are they going to stop? Are they going to stop at four and a half, at five? Are we talking about getting into the double digits? Yeah, we, we call that the terminal rate. At what rate, what interest rate does the Federal Reserve 
stop raising interest rates. And I think right now the bet is somewhere between five and six percent. And you've heard some Fed presidents talking about that. Uh, you know, before the meeting, we have a big Fed meeting December 13th and 14th where they're going to raise rates again. You've been hearing about this terminal rate for folks looking that up on Investopedia. That is the rate at which it will stop because that is the rate at which it believes there'll be some uh, some equilibrium in terms of the decline in uh, inflation and the rise in unemployment, but also a cooling down of the overall labor situation. So I think watch those numbers between five and 6%. And we're going to have another rate hike soon. We're about another percentage, percentage and a half away from that. Is the idea in doing that from the investor's perspective that the investor, say, suppose once the Fed's main interest rate is at five, five and a half percent, could park money in a shorter term treasury that would largely track that interest rate. That like, why should I go take a flyer on the stock market or invest in property, plant, equipment, real estate, whatever it is, if I could just get a guaranteed five and a half percent on my money? You're making a great point, and we call that Tina. There used to be, there is no alternative. Finally, there is alternatives, and those alternatives are in fixed income, are in money markets, even municipal bonds, boring old municipal bonds. Some of them are returning five, six, seven percent. After the year we've had, I think a lot of investors, especially older investors nearing retirement who want to preserve capital, they look at that and they go, I am perfectly happy with five, six percent. I know inflation's eating at it, but I don't want to take any more risks. So there's alternatives now. And I think the Federal Reserve likes that. It doesn't like to see the capital markets on fire or in some sort of a manic bubble like they were in 2021. So I think that they're keeping an eye on the capital markets, even though they say, oh, the stock market's not our purview. We care about, again, maximum employment, that's unemployment between three and four percent and inflation near 2%. Caleb, why are the banks still sitting on their hands in terms of savings yields or certificates of deposits? Shouldn't this Fed uh, hiking cycle have caused more of a competition for deposits? Yeah, you're starting to see that. And if, you're, if you've noticed in your emails or maybe you get text messages from banks or your credit card companies, they're offering you personal loans now with rel- you know, competitive uh, borrowing rates. They're offering you the ability to move your money into CDs or other products right now because they're finally yielding north of 2 or 3%. You're starting to see that drumbeat happen right now. And banks you know, would like to do a lot more loaning, but they also want to be careful. They have to have a certain amount of reserves you know, based upon the, la- on the great financial crisis. They have to have money reserved in case there are bankruptcies or defaults or foreclosures. But also, the other part of banking is very dull right now. That's the trading. That's the investment banking. That's the I- IPO market. So these big Wall Street banks are, are being pull- pushed and pulled in two different directions. On the one hand, they're making money because they loan money at higher rates. On the other hand, they're not getting a lot of traditional investment banking activity. So that's why you're seeing banks kind of held in this position here. But what's not to love if they're paying still pennies on savings, if they feel like they're doing you, I go walk into a Bank of America branch on occasion, they feel like they're doing you a favor by taking deposit money. They could turn around and still loan that money out. There's still some mortgage formation. Oh, absolutely. And I think that they will. And if there's demand, they absolutely will. So they're looking for consumer demand to pick up or business demand to make investments so they can loan that money out. But as we potentially head into a recession. You know how it is. People tighten their belts a little bit. People think twice about making that big purchase. Just look at the demand destruction that's happening in the new car and used car market, in addition to housing. But let's just take vehicles for a while. A year ago, Robin, they were so expensive. They were impossible to get. We didn't have enough microchips to make our Teslas. Now, vehicle prices for new end-use vehicles have fallen off hard in the past three months. So there is demand destruction that's happening amidst all of this. Caleb, take me to housing. Uh, you guys at Investopedia ran an article in mid-November said the Dallas Federal Reserve predicts home prices could sink 20%. Rising mortgage rates could trigger a steep contraction in home prices. Now, there were people out there, really lucky people who had three, three and a half percent mortgages a year and a half ago. Now they're closer to 7%. I mean, this clearly you could buy far less home with a mortgage that costs twice as much. But what makes this housing contraction, you know, to paraphrase Passover, different from all other housing contractions? We lean to the left when we look at this housing contraction. <laughs> and and when we do, um, I, I think that, that could happen. We did see prices increase 20, 22% in some cities. And I'm talking about Vegas. I'm talking about Denver, Phoenix, Arizona, Sun Valley, Idaho, saw massive price increases, areas around North Carolina. Uh, so you're probably going to see prices come down. You're already starting to see price reductions if you just look anecdotally at Zillow or Realtor.com, but you're also seeing delays in purchases and delays in purchase prices. On the other hand, Robin, there is a weird demographic thing happening where we didn't build a lot of homes over the last year or two. So there's kind of a low limited supply still, even though those mortgage rates north of 6% for the 30 year have scared a lot of potential first-time home buyers out of the market. 
there's still not that much inventory. Inventory is tight, and what's available are the super expensive homes at the high end of things. The lower, the 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 less expensive homes are tough to come by for first-time buyers because they can't afford the down payment or those interest rates, those 30-year fixed over 6%. That's very tough for a first-time buyer. But here's the thing. In the speculative realm, at the, at the higher end, are these people as uh, dependent on mortgage rates, everyday mortgage rates? If you're taking out a jumbo loan or putting a significant amount of cash down, there are some Latin American buyers, as you know, in South Florida that are 80% cash. I mean, I think that the, the problem is, is that the Federal Reserve controls a main interest rate that's hardwired to the mortgage market. It can't go in and pull these fine levers and say, well, let's make housing more affordable for millennials. Let's make housing less affordable for speculators and people with third and fourth homes in Scottsdale and in Colorado. Yeah, it can't necessarily do that. But at the same time, housing is a big driver of inflation as well, not just in the prices, but when you think about the money we spend on our homes, and that's a huge deal. You know, If we're not going to be buying new homes, what are we going to do? We're going to spend money on our existing homes. And that means a lot of deck work, a lot of inside stuff. So for a while there, that part of the market was very hot. But going into a potential recession here with high interest rates, and they're only expected to rise, you're going to see a lot of pressure on home building. You're going to see a lot more pressure on home improvement. These are the consumer discretionary purchases that folks just pull back on when they tighten up. Hmm. Well, what about individual investors? We spoke about it in, in past episodes that there was this, gosh, this flourishing moment where if you and I you know, were covering the dot-com boom at the turn of the century, there were dairy traders, there was this whole realm of people. Carmelo Soprano was talking about it. You had CNBC's Maria Bartiromo on the various late shows. It was that cult of equity. And we saw something akin to it especially at the onset of the pandemic with Robinhood traders and meme stocks and everything. So much of that was flushed out of the market this year and individual investors getting burned. I mean, we are going to get into crypto. What is the lot of the individual investor to the extent that you have your finger on that pulse a lot with Investopedia? Yeah, great question. And we survey our readers who are individual investors by nature every two months to just find out how they're feeling. What are they feeling about? What are they scared of? What are they opportunistic about? What are their expectations for future returns? So we've been doing this really much pre-pandemic. And what they've told us recently, we just closed the survey last week, is that they're warming up a little bit to the equity markets. They're still investing a little bit more cautiously, and they're looking at CDs. They're looking at money markets because finally there is yield there. But uh, not that many folks expect big returns next year. That said, these are committed investors who grew up with the equity market. They love their big stocks, so they're not ready to turn their backs on the Apples, the Microsofts, the Amazons of the world in terms of their holdings, and they're looking for opportunities to put money back to work. But I don't think anybody that was around in 2008 or nine thinks that if we do go into recession, it will look anything like the last one. On the other hand, I think folks are recognizing that things are very different right now. The Federal Reserve is raising interest rates. We had interest rates near zero for so many years, Robin, uh, that it was easy to throw a dartboard at the stock market and make anything work. But now with interest rates going up, you have to be more selective. So we're seeing money move, obviously, into the energy sector, into financials. We're seeing investors a lot more interested in alternatives to the good old-fashioned large-cap equity market. Caleb, what about the the kind of the fetish stocks, the means, meme stocks, AMC, GameStop? I mean, you saw this happen. It was bizarre. Hedge funds who were trying to bet on the downfall of a company like AMC Movies, movie theater chain, which was empty during the pandemic, and individual investors with cash and time to spare at home, bidding up the prices, helping management sell a chunk of stock and buy AMC more runway and come up with new ideas and kind of wing it. Um, they called themselves, these traders, diamond hands, right? I have diamond hands. I can hold on forever. I don't care. But doesn't a bear market of this size kind of kill the diamond hands? Yeah, they they call them apes as well because apes, right? Uh, they they were you know passionate about uh, AMC and the CEO uh, Adam Aaron, who they called the great the silver ape. AMC took a lot of that money and bought a gold mine with it. That just shows you what kind of they uh, bought an what, actual gold mine. And I saw that they released some of their popcorn at at uh, grocery stores. It wasn't it wasn't cutting edge innovation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'd stick to the movies. Um, so I think a lot of those folks were flushed out of the market, which is unfortunate. Some 20 million new investors and traders joined the stock market amid 2020 and 2021 when we were getting money. Some folks were getting money from the government, and a lot of folks were at home, working from home, or they'd lost their jobs. So they started trading because you had this mania in stocks because interest rates were so low. The Fed floored them 
right as the pandemic began. So there was a great opportunity to make money on just about anything that moved, no matter how risky. Well, guess what? They thought they were sticking their finger in the eye of Wall Street. Guess who wins when everything gets flushed out? Wall Street, because they make their money on the way up and they make their money on the way down. While some folks did make out with a lot of money, some of those meme stock traders, a lot of folks were flushed out. And the average account balance was never really that high in a lot of these new accounts. And for us as investing educators, that just breaks our heart. We want people to be invested for the long term so they can build wealth and afford the life that they want to live, not try to get into the casino, make money in two weeks and get out. It takes patience. It takes time. It takes education. And a lot of folks just thought they would jump right in, make some extra money and jump right out. It doesn't quite work that way, especially for most people. Full disclosure, please do stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, is FullDRadio.com. Again, FullDRadio.com. A shout out to our radio home base, WVTF's Radio IQ, the NPR member station across the great Commonwealth. We are on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. Heck, I bet you can find us on Friendster. The handle is FullDRadio. And holler if you too would like to carry us on your air. If you're just joining us, my guest is Caleb Silver, back on again. He's officially a friend of the show, editor-in-chief of Investopedia and Past Life. He was director of U.S. Business News at CNN, which we will talk about. Uh, before we get into any of that, Caleb, I got to tell you, I know one of your passions, and we're going to get into this as well, is financial literacy and education. W again, the, the, the refrain a thousand times, what the heck is crypto? What the heck just happened to crypto this year with the collapse of FTX? And what is the future for crypto? And what is the need for crypto? Great questions. And those are questions that our readers ask us all the time as well. And I, we all know crypto is in this deep, dark winter where prices have come way, way off their highs. But let me just tell you this. Bitcoin over the last 10 years is up some 300,000 to 400,000%. In the past 10 years, you find me another asset class that, that's had that kind of upward and to the right movement. It's been volatile to be sure. But there's a reason that people are so fascinated with it. And let's put Bitcoin aside. It is the biggest, most widely held of the cryptocurrencies, but you have to mine Bitcoin to make it. So there is some economics of scale right there. And a lot of Bitcoin is held by big institutional holders. So there is a supply demand issue with Bitcoin where there's only going to be some 21 odd million Bitcoins ever mined. And we're not done mining them. The closer we get to that uh, that number, the harder they get to mine. So okay, that's why it has its own Okay, but what's the need? What's the pain? I understand the dollar is not perfect. It's a fiat currency. It's not backed by gold. It's the full faith and credit of the government. It can be inflated. You could have the Fed take rates to zero. You could have many other distortions happen to it. But what was the pain or the addressable market so much that this one obscure esoteric asset went up 300,000%? Well, some of it was the, the, the newness of it all. But also, when you think about why it was created in the first place, if you read the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper, he's talking about money transfers and a lot of people and remittances. A lot of people transfer money back to their home countries via Western Union or the wire transfers uh, uh, services, and they pay big interest payments. They pick big on that, as we say in the business. And he was looking for a way to decentralize that, take that off of the grid, take that off. I'm, I'm saying he, Satoshi was looking for a way to take that off of the, the grid, so to speak, and put it on the blockchain and make that a lot cheaper for people. That was one of the use cases for it as well. But a lot of it was behind this idea of a blockchain, a decentralized ledger that is not controlled by any government or controlled by the big banks, where we all have visibility into the highway of what's going on with our money and with transactions. And when you think about the applications for blockchain, makes sense for things like artwork, makes sense for things like real estate, where we just want to put things on a digital ledger and not have all the paperwork. The coins, like Bitcoin, Litecoin, and a lot of others, think of those as the cars on that highway. Some of them are faster than the others. Some of them look cooler than the others, like a Ferrari. But not a lot of them have functionality. Ethereum has some functionality. Bitcoin has a little bit of functionality, and it's being used by institutions right now. Most of the other coins do not. They are shiny tokens that people trade like trading cards or like Pokemon cards, where they don't really have a lot of use cases. Should they not have held their value better in such a volatile year for capital markets? Anything that had risk attached to it was destroyed this year because the Fed was raising interest rates. The dynamic had changed and suddenly people were getting a lot more scared looking for safe havens. What are the safe havens when you get scared? The dollar, bonds, although they didn't work out this year, and gold. The dollar is the asset that got the most attention this year when all risky assets fell. So there's no more risky asset than an asset that's not, not backed by anything. And that describes Bitcoin. That describes about a thousand or so of the coins that are out there. They're not backed by anything like the dollar 
or like gold. So when the bottom falls out, there is really nothing there to catch it. All right. Suppose you are at one of these Christmas or Hanukkah parties imbibing uh, some sort of strong eggnog and acquiring RSV or COVID strain or the flu or something else. What do they call this? This triple pandemic, the triple epidemic that we have this winter. And somebody comes up to you and starts you know, bending your ear about gold. There's only so much of it that was ever mined. It is, it is uh, very rare. It's supposed to hold its value in a time of volatility or war and other things. It hasn't had a spectacular year. It's well off of its high. I mean, how does an individual investor even look at gold? It's not like you're going to uh, buy and store the Krugerrands or the bullion yourself, their storage costs, their security costs. But then there isn't anything that tracks it very neatly in the stock market. It's it's just one of these $64 trillion questions that nobody's ever answered for me. Yeah. And it not only has it not had a good year, it hasn't had a good 20 years because it's not that useful of an asset except in manufacturing. And yes, it is a store of value. And a lot of there are still some economies and countries out there that base their currencies off of it. But it is not that useful, except mostly in manufacturing. So when you think about safe havens, it used to be the safe haven. There's still a lot of gold commercials out there on, on radio stations and some, and some TV stations late into the night. But it doesn't store value or doesn't appreciate the way it should when it's supposed to. And I think that's what's turned a lot of people away from gold as an asset to secure their portfolios. Now, a little bit, having a little bit, just like having a little bit of Bitcoin, it's not a terrible idea if you're looking for some balance or for some ways to diversify, but it just hasn't served that function in an effective way for the past two to three decades. But I'm often asked, especially by the Iranian relatives who seem to have a gold and oil fetish. I've heard this from Indian Americans as well, with relatives calling and asking about gold. Suppose you are diversified and invested in US emerging developed markets. There are some miners within those indices. Do you need to diversify more into precious metals? For example, go out and buy a gold ETF, which isn't really efficient in the grand scheme of things. I'm, I'm trying not to get into the weeds here with you, but gold, I'm always asked by listeners about it. Yeah, you could diversify into the other assets. You could do the picks and the shovels, as we call it. You don't have to own the actual commodity or own uh, options to buy the actual commodity. So there are ways to get yourself around it. Look at AMC bought itself a gold mine, but what is gold really used for? It's used in manufacturing in large part, and it's very important in a lot of big manufacturing operations. So there is that aspect if you think it's going to go up in value because you think we're going to have a lot more manufacturing. But look at what, what we're facing in the next year or two. Probably a global recession, maybe not in some parts of the, of, of the planet, but you're going to have a slowdown everywhere. So that's not great for manufacturing. Now, in terms of store of value, is it going to be better than a treasury bond right now? U.S. treasury bonds finally yielding the 10-year over 3% or a money market fund that's yielding between 3 and 4%. I think most most folks would take the money in the bank versus the metal in the ground. I got to ask you before we move off to financial literacy, would the Fed be leery if we do fall into a deep recession or some sort of economic crash of slashing rates like it used to do, like it did in the pandemic, like it did in the financial crisis, you know, cutting them three quarters of a point at a time or a point at a time, and maybe even taking them to zero and then buying bonds and doing creative things because we did officially unleash capital I inflation this time around, which was something that we thought was gone and dead and we would never see again. Uh, the Fed was struggling for years to see inflation anywhere north of 2% until the last year and a half when because of the imbalance in the economy, we shut it down, then we turned it back on again. We finally did have that inflation that they've been waiting for for years, of course, much more extreme than they thought. But the risk there, and we call this moral hazard, is that are we in this nanny state with the Federal Reserve where every time the economy gets into trouble or, or the capital markets get into trouble, the Fed has to step in with rate cuts? It doesn't want to serve that purpose, right? The purpose of the Federal Reserve is stability, price stability, and maximum employment, uh, plus a few other things. But those are its key focus. So every time something happens or we have these long hiccups or if we get into a deep recession, the Fed will probably be forced to cut. But I think as investors and as consumers, we become used to the fact that we're going to get bailed out eventually. And that has put us in a lot of problems. If you think about the bailouts that have happened, mm. you know, going all the way back to the beginning of the, tw of the 21st century, 2008, 2009, what happened in 2020, you know, I think we've gotten used to a lot of that, but that does not produce good effects long term. I would posit that if you're going to go back to the year 2000 and, you know, coming off the dot-com boom and the dot-com crash and 9-11 and everything else that happened, that perhaps... 40 to 50% of that time was on emergency interest rate policy. That's a long kind of generation. I don't see moral hazard bandied about anymore. It's kind of expected that if things fall apart, the Fed's going to bail you out. 
Yeah, funny how it goes from actually being moral hazard to being this is just the way we do business. But don't forget, Ben Bernanke, who was the Fed chair uh, during the, the great financial crisis, he was a student of the recession. And what he studied, uh, and Jerome Powell too, what they studied was the effects of depressions and interest rates to get you out of these downward spiraling economic cycles. They knew that by manipulating monetary policy, in this case, raising it or lowering it during the, during the pandemic, that they could impact the trajectory of the economy and maybe steer it out of a deep depression. So they've studied this for a while. They're kind of fascinated with it. And this has been par for the course for the Fed, not just this Fed, but the Ben Bernanke's Fed as well. Full disclosure, you're listening to Caleb Silver. He's Investopedia's editor-in-chief. In a past life, he was executive producer at CNNMoney.com and director of U.S. Business News at CNN up until 2014. On financial literacy, I hear so much about frustrated millennials and Gen Z, debt-laden, locked out of the housing market. I happen to have a lot of parents who listen to the show telling me, what can I do with my children to kind of put them in good stead? I'm not in a position to make them a trust fund baby, but what, what can I do out of kowtowing them to do something or not do something or not spend a certain way? I think there's a lot of learned helplessness generationally, which something is near and dear to your heart to kind of maybe support more financial literacy for teenagers. Oh, we, we are so passionate about that. And the two things we don't like to talk about, Robin, are our money and our health. But what's more important than either of those things in terms of our overall, overall well-being and the well-being of our right. households? Nothing, as you know. So we, we think it's more important than ever. Now, we're built on financial literacy. It's in the name. We've been doing this for 23, 24 years. But we have not been addressing all the communities we need to address. We have not been addressing all the folks we need to address at different stages in their life. And for us now, we believe that it's everybody, 8 to 80, but we also want to start addressing children because when you start to learn those money lessons in financial literacy and education at a young age, you never forget it. But it starts with those conversations about where does the, around the kitchen table, where does the money come from? How do we pay the rent? How much do I make? Where, what is our debt? Having that financial inventory conversation with your family, super important and making sure everybody knows how money works. But I think it goes beyond that. And we're going to take it to the schools in the next year or two here, where we're going to start to create financial literacy curriculum for public schools across the country so that teachers have it in their hands to teach their students. Because asking teachers to teach financial literacy in addition to their regular course load and everything else that they do, we ask teachers to do so much. That's a lot of work. But at Investopedia, that's what we're all about. So we're creating financial literacy curriculum. We're spreading it to as many public schools as possible. We'd love to put it up there in the RVA. We're putting it wherever we can, and it's going to be free and available to anyone who needs it. My high school economics professor, dear listener of the show, Mr. Lawrence Lutness, Larry Lutness, I hope you're listening, Professor Lutness. Uh, he was teaching me economics, and a lot of that was supply-demand curves. He was teaching us about the importance of Alan Greenspan, and only a curious student kind of would stick around, maybe come in during lunch and talk to him about capital markets and the way the world works and Japan's deflation and start to get into financial literacy and other things. Why hasn't it been codified at the public school level? I mean, even through college, you're getting largely a kind of a theoretical Econ 101, Econ 102 thing. Maybe if you dabble into a corporate finance or capital markets class, we were lucky to have at, at, at Princeton, I could tell you, the late Jack Bogle coming and guest lecturing in Burton Malkiel's class. That was a treat. I don't think anybody gets that. And you have investing clubs and other places where you could start to build uh, a personal finance head of steam. But other than that, I mean, we were largely trapped in the theoretical and not the practical. And it's so upsetting because you go to college, if you're lucky enough to go to college, what do you see the first day or two? You see a, a, a table out there with some Frisbees, some water bottles, and some shirts with a credit card company offering you a credit card that you can use throughout college. You leave college with student debt, the average is around thirty, thirty-two thousand dollars plus credit card debt. Then you go out into the workforce and you get a job and uh, the low end paying of the scale and you already in debt. So you're starting your professional and adult life, 30, 40, $50,000 in debt, and you don't have any idea how to navigate through that. So that's we got to reverse that right away. But also, you know, only about half the states are requiring financial literacy in elementary school. And a lot of them that do require don't have the, the time to put it together. Some other states are doing a great job with it, like Oklahoma. So what we're trying to do is say, we're going to create the curriculum for you, put it in your schools, teach your students one semester, two semesters worth, and make sure that they leave with some understanding and some certification of understanding how money really works. Now, we're not talking about 
taking them into the deep end and making sure they understand regression analysis and how to trade options. We're talking about the fundamentals, Robin, and there's nothing more important than that, especially as you're growing up, getting your first job. So a lot of folks and a lot of schools are forced to teach the tests and they're supposed to te- they're forced to teach the requirements when they're missing out on teaching the things that actually are practical in our lives, which is our health and our money. And again, nothing more important than those two. Here's the paradox, Caleb, is if you look at Wall Street, the financial services industry, you always see these banner ads, something to the tune of however many trillions of dollars is going to be bequeathed from boomers and Gen Xers to their children over the next decade or so. And that is up for grabs from a a fiduciary and investing point of view. And yet the same major financial services players are the ones larding up these freshmen in college with credit card debt and credit card applications and more recently kind of buy now, pay later offers. I mean, can you have it both ways? Can you have an investor class and a home equity class and then also generation debt? Yeah, it's funny. That's it. That describes what the US economy has become and what capitalism has become for a lot of folks here who have who are fortunate enough to even have the opportunity to invest. Just remember, a lot of folks don't even have the opportunity to put money away to save money or invest money. But yeah, we do teach folks how to spend very well. We're very good at spending here in the United States. You know, we're great at the Black Friday deals and the and the doorbusters, but we're not great at talking about the realities of financial education and the realities of building wealth over time and avoiding debt. Folks get trapped in the debt cycle and it happens in lower income communities more because they inherit debt. They can never break through that cycle. And I'm, we're not talking about it investing so that they can have, you know, what the TV ads want for us to have that beautiful life and the beach and the grandkids running around and you're retired and you're doing nothing. We are talking about building wealth so that you can live the life you want to live, that you can underwrite the life that is meaningful and important to you, and then create generational wealth for your family as well. So that's missing from the conversation, but we want to make sure that it's front and center. And that's why we're so passionate about financial literacy for kids in school right now. Caleb, by way of transition, and I mentioned it before, you spent a chunk of your career at CNN. You were, I'm going to read from your bio, served as senior producer for The Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer. You were the executive producer of CNNMoney.com. At CNN Money, you were nominated for an Emmy for new approaches to business and financial reporting. And then you came back to CNN after Bloomberg as a director of U.S. Business News between 2011 and 2014. I know that the headlines recently that upward of, I guess, 400 people, many of them journalists, were laid off at CNN. The new parent is Warner Brothers Discovery. They've had uh, management turmoil and everything. I got to ask you what CNN and CNN money means and what you've been hearing from old colleagues and kind of what your perspective of this has been. Yeah, I got to say it breaks my heart because I have a I have a really big spot in my heart for CNN in general. I spent 10 really good years there and we built beautiful things and I worked with so many smart people and I developed as a journalist and I got to see the world. So when you hear about layoffs and people you know that have been there a long time losing their jobs, that's very rough and like HLN I grew up, you know, with well, HLN. Headline news. Yeah, headline news and 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 the you know the closing of that channel as a news channel. That breaks my heart, but you know, we get used to what we grew up with. And things do have to change. And media companies do need to evolve. And I can't speak to what the new management team is doing over there. I hope that there's a plan because I want that brand to succeed and continue is such an important brand in terms of global journalism and telling the story from the front lines. And I was fortunate to be a part of it. So when you hear about this, you know, these these big layoffs and huge changes and people, you know, being shown the door after so many good years, it just breaks your heart. And I've been a part of, uh, you know, different companies where you've seen that type of thing happen. And it never feels good, but watching it from afar, when you, it's like watching somebody you, you love go through some very painful changes. I just hope the other side of this looks great because CNN is a very important brand. It's a very important service, and I was honored to work there. Well, now as a digital native with Investopedia, which is thriving, and you guys are under IAC, which is, what is it? The subunit is Slashdot? Uh, dot dash Meredith. Dot so dash. we are the, Sorry. the biggest publisher in North America right now. Uh, we acquired Meredith uh, last year, about a year ago, and now we have all these great brands, but we are owned at the grandparent level by IAC. And so Meredith bought People Magazine, right, from Time Inc. That's correct. Meredith bought Time and then sold it back out, but it kept People Magazine, In Style, Real Simple, Food and Wine, Better Homes and Gardens. We have 24 great brands from the Meredith family that we've in, that we've put together with the Dot Dash brands, and Investopedia is part of that family. So now we went from sort of being on our own uh, to being a part of this really big publishing family, and it's been pretty great. So meanwhile, CNN's website, CNN.com, has the most monthly visits in the United States. I think I saw the number was close to 400 million monthly visits and 144 million unique visitors in 2021. 
Isn't that something you would die for, like if, if that was presented to you right now? But CNN itself, under its new leader, Chris Licht, it seems decidedly worried about a linear TV, which is a declining opportunity. We know about cord cutters. We know about fewer younger people are paying the cable bill and waiting for a CNN headline. Yes, if war breaks out, you might turn on the TV and watch it. But if you have this digital goldmine in the number one digital news outlet, how are they not doing more with that and, in fact, laying off digital journalists? I see that Paul LaMonica, the business writer, was let go. Paul LaMonica, one of the greats uh, in our business, um, you know, somebody I learned a lot from in my time at CNN Money, which was later called CNN Business. So Paul's a star. But, you know, I would love 50 million or 400 million impressions in a, in a month, and that would be great. But it's the engagement that matters. And don't forget, CNN was built on TV. It brings you pictures of the world as it's happening. And even though the midterm elections are behind us, more or less, we are heading into a massive election cycle. And that's where CNN does very well, bringing you the, you know, the elections, the politics, front row seat. So I don't think they're going anywhere uh, too far away from their TV roots. And digital is the future. Everybody knows that as well. But you can't ignore what brought you to the party, especially in a massive election cycle like the one we're facing right now. I just really, I, honestly, I hope for the best for CNN at large because the brand meant so much to me as a journalist growing up. A final coda on this, do you think that it remains under its current parent, Warner Brothers Discovery? It seems like a misfit because it was a toxic asset for AT&T Warner when Donald Trump hated CNN and wanted antitrust blockage. Uh, again, I don't want to get you into the weeds, but the company right now is decidedly focused with cost cutting and HBO Max and rebranding that premium service tier that CNN almost seems like a distraction. It could, it could use more focus from a more committed owner. Yeah. Folks have been predicting this sale or the spin out of CNN for years, and they've been wrong about it for years, although it's wound up in a bunch of different hands since Ted Turner created it. That said, you never know what these big media companies are going to do. I would not bet against the management team at Discovery Warner. Uh, those are some smart folks that have made some pretty important calls over the last 10 years or so. So I would never bet against them. But what they end up doing with CNN as an asset still remains to be seen. But don't forget, these, are the, these next couple of years are very, very critical for politics, and CNN makes a lot of its money doing political coverage. And just in general, it's a very intense news time and a news cycle. So CNN at its roots was a great news gathering operation that brought you the world as it happened. I hope that it sticks to those roots because that's what made me uh, want to work there so badly. And that's why I had such a valuable experience working there for 10 years. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our radio listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. Holler if you too would like Full Disclosure on your air. My DMs are always open. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Investopedia's editor-in-chief, Caleb Silver. Caleb, in the five minutes or so we have left, I'd like to go freestyle. You know the old skating rinks of the 1980s where the DJ would, would say, hey, freestyle, air supply time. Take me where you think we should go. What are the headlines that you're tracking right now that are about to come out, that things are getting short shrifted, that should be getting covered as we approach the end of year? Yeah, well, the end of year is such an interesting time and a lot of folks, and we like to look at what folks have been looking up on Investopedia for the past year or so. So we're coming out with our terms of the year. I'm going to give you a, a spoiler alert on a couple of them. Core inflation, a very big one. Poison pill, a very big one this year because of Elon Musk and his efforts to buy Twitter, which were, ended up being successful. Uh, so we're always looking at what people are looking for, but we're also thinking about what people are going to be looking for in the new year. And the next year is going to be very interesting in terms of what happens in the crypto space and in the decentralized finance space. Remember, the Bitcoin and the, and the coins get all the attention. Those are the shiny cars out there. But what's really being laid are the tracks of a brand new uh, technological uh, framework and a, and a scaffolding for the new economy. And that is decentralized finance. That is the blockchain. But also you have to feel secure as an investor playing in that. So we're going to see a lot more security going on on the digital front, a lot of folks promising security. We're also going to be watching very closely what happens with a potential recession here. If we go into a recession, how deep and how long and how as investors have we gotten used to these back and forth economic cycles? So we're watching the way people operate in and around their money always, all the time. So we're going to be taking a very close look at that. But also, you know, this is a, a, a very important year coming up for getting through the recession, but also what's next for the U.S. economy? We've really changed a lot. Technology has been a huge driver of a lot of those changes, but we're going to be reverting to a lot of the, 
the value stocks and a lot of the industrial parts of the economy that really got brought us a long way in the 20th century. What happens in this new, new economy, especially on the jobs front? Those are things we're going to be keeping a close eye on. What happens to sustainability in investing? I mean, this has been a, a lightning rod. Some states want to ban interference with fossil fuels in portfolios, and others are much more forward thinking about it, such as California. I mean, you're going to get asked about this too. Should an investor be looking to screen out unsustainable companies and reward companies for sustainability? Is there any any empirical evidence out there that these companies, you could do good and do well? Yeah, I'm very passionate about this. And I host another podcast called The Green Investor, brought to you by Investopedia, where we're talking about what it takes to be an educated investor that wants to do right by your environmental sensibilities, that wants to invest along with your environmental conscious. And ESG, uh, environmental, social, and governance criteria, have gotten a bad name in the past year because there's been a lot of greenwashing in the financial services Explain industry. Explain greenwashing quickly. Greenwashing is when companies say, hey, we're going to sell you this ETF, this exchange-traded fund, or this mutual fund because it's environmentally friendly, but you look inside and you have some of the biggest oil companies and you have some of the biggest polluters uh, in the world inside that portfolio. So what do they actually mean when they say ESG and what does scoring actually mean if you're going to rate companies by their environmental, social, and governance criteria? So there's been a lot of that. There's been accusations of that. The Securities and Exchange Commission is going to police that a lot more carefully going forward. On the other hand, we have to do something about climate change. And there is a lot of interesting developments and some very important developments happening in climate technology, but also among companies uh, throughout the world that are producing solutions that, that drive us more towards renewables and that help us ultimately reduce global warming. And if we don't, that's going to be the big story for the next 10, 20, 30 years. Because if there's one thing we cannot control as investors or as consumers or just as households, that is climate change. And we've already seen the effects of it. That, I think, is the big story that no one wants to talk enough about but it's probably the most important story going forward. And there are ways to invest along with your environmental conscious. You just have to do the research. Caleb Silver, the esteemed editor-in-chief of Investopedia, previously director of U.S. Business News at CNN. Sir, you are officially a friend of the show. I hope that gets you a free Grand Slam breakfast at Denny's, or I don't know what you could trade it in for, but you know, holler, I'll Venmo you at the very worst. You're always welcome on this show, needless to say. It's an honor and pleasure to be here. And all I want is a full D hoodie, and I will trade you one of yours for one of mine from the Investopedia Express. I'll, 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 I'll create an NFT at the very least. <laughs> I'll take that too. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly, this show podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe at fulldradio.com. Shout out one last time to our radio listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. Holler if you too would like us on your air. And you can catch me weekly on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week. <laughs>